episode of Sessions with Mary Jane. I am your host, Jordan Freed. And I'm Brendan O'Brien. And we are back with a uh, a jack-of-all-trades, uh, kind of an everyman man. Uh, he has been an actor in uh, cult classics, such as uh, The Last House on the Left. And he is also a comedian. And he also has done other things as well that he's going to tell us about. Uh Give it up for Mark Scheffler. Ooh, thanks for being yeah. on the show, Mark. How are you? Thanks for having me. Good, good. It's good to have you. Uh, I actually watched The Last House on the Left today because uh, I wanted I wanted to make sure I did my research. I, I wasn't sure whether I had watched it before in the past, but uh, it's definitely a tough 3 p.m. watch. <laughs> yeah, it's not, it's not an after-school, afternoon movie. It's, yeah. it's definitely not that. But it's still here, you know. It's like, you know, it's amazing. It is. It is literally the gift that keeps on giving. Yeah. In what I way? Mean, pardon me. In what way? Well, I've gotten a chance over the years. Remember, I made the movie when I was twenty-one, right? Mm-hmm. So I'm seventy-three now. Mm-hmm. So that's a fifty-two-year differential. So I've gotten the opportunity personally to. Uh, evolve my opinion of it mm-hmm. and to evolve my relationship with it. I've also had the amazing opportunity through appearances at horror film conventions to interact with this massive cross-generational fan base mm-hmm. that Last House has and discover why it exists mm-hmm. because you know all things being honest uh, when it was finished, I looked at it, and even though I was like 21 years old, I stood there with David Heston and Fred Lincoln uh, outside of a screening room in, on the west side of New York, uh, outside of a filmways. And we all kind of like said to each other to the effect, hey, it was really great meeting you. Uh, uh, love working with you. I think we're going to be friends for a long time, which of course we were, mm-hmm. uh, but no one's ever going to come and see this piece of shit. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> it shows you how much, you know, none of us knew about, about this thing called uh, fucking lucky, you know, just this. Wow. That's the amazing thing for me. Is it like, you know, 52 years later, we're still talking about it. Yeah. Oh, for sure. There's so many things going on. Also not to mention you uh, probably went through a bunch of different eras of movie watching and people have probably rediscovered your films from VHS times to DVD times Mm. to now the streaming times. People are probably coming back to it. I was able to watch it for free on Pluto and I'm sure somebody is getting royalties somehow. (laughs) One of the, one of the um, strongest links in that chain has been parents who make their children watch it (laughs) so that they understand what can happen if they make a wrong decision. I I can't tell you the number of times I have signed pictures at shows with parents and their teenage children, boys and girls, you know, Mm. males, females, where parents saying, yeah, I saw this when I was a kid and I damn sure made sure my kids saw it. And kids would say to me, yeah, my parents made me see this because they wanted me to know what happens if I fucked up, you know, <laughs> just, just like, and, and that, that gave me like 
like a, a, a real unique understanding of, of what impact continuing impact, you know, Wes's vision uh, uh, still has on people. And, and he would, he would like that. I think, you know, um, he was a good guy. And I, and I think, uh, I think I would make him feel good. Yeah. What, what were things that you could take away from the experience? Like, because he, he was such a young director when he did that, like what I mean, what did you what did you time. see already? First time. First time. Yeah. Wow. What did you see like from that experience that you knew, like wow, this guy is legit? Okay, so looking back, as I've done, I've re I've, I have relived the, that twenty day shoot many times in my life, in my head, at different periods of time in my life, and for different reasons. Um, Wes was an was was an innate storyteller, right? You know, he he had no experience directing, and that's why I can tell you that the final product, what you see on screen, really was a collaboration of Wes and Sean, and Wes and us, and and uh, us. I say the four bad guys, us together. You know, bonding. I mean, to have a movie that has this kind of impact, whether it's a studio production or an independent, like we were, you, you got to have like a lot of fucking luck. Mm -hmm. And, and, and that luck is born out of the chemistry that exists between your, your leads. Mm -hmm. And if they have good chemistry and, you know, like, like the oceans 11 movies, right. On a, on a different genre, that group of people, you know, Brad Pitt and, and George Clooney and Julia Roberts, that, that that they've assembled. They have excellent interactive, they have excellent chemistry together. They're fun to watch in the same room, right? They, they are, because you know they're just going to go at each other. It's going to be fun. Well, on the, you know, on the negative side and the side of, of, of bizarre criminals, um, you know, Jeremy, David, Freddie, and I, had some version much, you know, less because of the budgets and everything, but some version of that. And, and we just gelled. We, you know, the fact that we were unknowns, so that added, you know, the, the mystery to it because you couldn't say, Oh, there's this actor in that role. You know, nobody knew who we were. So we, this could almost be a documentary. Hmm. A lot of elements went together, you know, that, that were, some in our control as part of the film and some just fucking luck, just dumb fucking luck. Yeah. If you could like pick three words to describe what it felt like to work on that set, what would those words be? Amazing first experience. <laughs> wow. Cool. Okay. Because I learned, because now I look back and I know a lot, right? Mm -hmm. Because I'm 73 and I, you know, I've had a nice career and I've been on a lot of sets and produced stuff and, written and directed. And so I know a lot. And now I look back on that and, and the foundations, the pillars of everything I know about filmmaking and production today began there. Mm -hmm. That gave me watching that production go from a few meetings in Sean's office to Connecticut to makeup people and wardrobe and, you know, sets and lights and ca a camera and Jesus Christ, we're doing fucking doing this. Mm -hmm. That, that produced in me 
that journey, that very short-lived journey produced, I guess, an amazing amount of endorphins because being, I, I love doing that. I mean, uh, I, I, I just love it. Just that, that there's a high when you're in that, that zone. Yeah. And I just wanted to be part of that always. Yeah. So like when did so like going back a little bit like when did you first de- develop a love for film or how did you first get interested in film in your life? Well, um, <laughs> perfectly timed sound effect. I know, right? <laughs> I, I'm gonna. Can you pause this at all? Or are we we live? Uh, we can pause. Yeah, yeah. yeah. We get it. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. This is. I gotta. I got a wife. I gotta take this. No worries. Oh. Yeah. Wrong number. Anyway. <laughs> Cool. Okay. So the question was, I believe, uh, when did I, you know, how did I get involved? When did it, you know, it didn't start with film. It, it, it started because before I did last house, I, I was, you know, while I was doing, I was also doing stand up, right? Mm-hmm. So I was performing. So the whole performing thing was already part of my life. And that began, um, let me see. You see that picture above me? Yeah. It's a little blurry to us, but what, yeah. what is it? A little blurry. Okay. Um, I'll show you a version of it, you know, but, but it, anyway, that's me at, uh, uh, from my 10th birthday party and the, the people around me are the three stooges. Oh, awesome. <laughs> and, and what happened was, uh, I was a huge three stooges fan when I was a kid. So, in the run-up to my 10th birthday, my dad, who was this out-of-the-box aluminum siding salesman, this real fucking character, right? And, you know, like custom-made suits and alligator shoes and, you know, gold cufflinks. So, like, really, like, exactly what you would imagine. And um, he said to me, you know, you're going to be 10 years old. Uh, uh, that's double digits, man. And he said, this is the biggest decade in your life. And I said, <laughs> He said, well, you're 10 now, you're a boy, but, you know, at the end of this decade, you'll be 20, you'll be a young man. And I, and I remember going, oh, shit, I never even thought of that. Wow, <laughs> this is it. This is fucking it, right? This is, this is all I got left as a kid. This mm-hmm. is it. So my dad said to me, uh, I want to get you something special for your birthday. I don't want to, you know, not, you know, not, not a regular birthday gift. I want to do something special for you to kick off the decade. And I said, uh, okay. My dad said, just go ahead and ask me. Just whatever you want. So I said, how about the Three Stooges? So <laughs> what do you mean? I, my, I said, I want to meet the Three Stooges. So, so my dad, again, you know, he wasn't one of these guys who was, oh, son, that's that's very good, but, you know, I uh, can't do that. My, my dad said, yeah, let me think about it. Let me figure this out. So it turns out he called a buddy of his at a, a, a nightclub in Pittsburgh called the Holiday House, uh, who was the talent booker. And and because uh, he knew that the Stooges had performed there, uh-huh. and uh, he put him in touch. That guy put him in touch with the Stooges agent, and they all found out. They all revealed to my dad that the Stooges were going to be in Pittsburgh in January of the next year. My birthday's in September, so he makes a tentative deal with them. Comes back to me and says, "Hey, look, here here's the deal. Uh, I can get you the Stooges." Uh, uh, but you have to wait three months because that's when they're going to be there. And that's the only time in their schedule when I can get them. Uh, so my dad looked at me and said, what do you think? I said, yeah, what are you kidding? <laughs> <laughs> I said, yuck, yuck, motherfucking yuck. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> right. So, so, so come the day, right. And we go there and, um, they start with all, you know, like 60 people, friends and family, 
other people, friends of my dad, uh, and in the nightclub, you know, where, where they're performing. So, um, in the middle of the show, Mo stops the show and he says to the audience, I understand we're here to celebrate Mark's birthday. Where's Mark? <laughs> oh. I look at my dad and my dad, you know, like this, and uh, <laughs> I raise my hand. And, he, you know, they put the spotlight on me. And and uh, Mo says, uh, I hear uh, uh, on the grapevine, Mark, that you're Pittsburgh's number one Stooge fan. Is that true? <laughs> And I said, uh, you know, I'm starting to get a little balls here. I said, yes, yes, it is true, Mo. <laughs> <laughs> so so uh, then, you know, Mo says, well, why don't you come up here on stage with us and tell me all about it? Oh. And I shit my fucking pants, man. <laughs> I, did not, I, I, I turned into Jackie Gleason on The Honeymooners. <laughs> like that, right? So I looked at my dad and my dad... I'm trying to remember exactly how he said it, but but he said he leaned over and he said, "There's no time to explain this now, but you better get your ass up on that stage." <laughs> <laughs> and and I I said, "Okay." So I went up on stage, and I don't know, man. I just I couldn't see anybody out in the audience because of the lights. They handed me a microphone, and there I was with Mo, Larry, and Curly Joe Dorita, and they, I started. You know, they they started doing their shit and I kind of wove into it, right? And I knew all the material, so I knew once I heard an opening line, I knew where it was going. And uh, Mo was surprised. They were all surprised. And after about a minute of that, uh, uh, Mo stops everything again, puts his hand on my head, and he says, I dub you the fourth stooge. Wow. <laughs> nuts, right? They went, like, they went, 60 people turned into, like, 6,000. They, they went fucking nuts. Wow. And all of a sudden, I felt this thing. The only way I can describe it, just, just from watching uh, and reading TV and, and books, watching TV and movies and reading books, that must be what it's like the first time someone smoked opium in one of those Chinese opium. <laughs> <laughs> I felt this warm rush coming at me, like this, this tidal wave of just cool, oh, man. And it hugged me. Huh. And, I, and I didn't, obviously, I didn't intellectualize it, but I, I look back and, at my life, and that's the day when I decided that, that this was going to, this is where I was going. Huh. This is, it, it just completely flipped a switch in me. And, and from that day forward, you know, uh, I kind of directed my entire life, my, my being, towards comedy and jokes and you know and I went through transitions and I started it I didn't I, I look back now and I didn't realize but I was writing jokes I just didn't know it you know like um uh, uh I watched a lot of tv I was a latchkey kid so I watched a lot of tv so the year the you guys know the the, the you ever hear the tv show the rifleman no okay so the Rifleman, you're good because you don't know anything about it. So let's see if I, I can explain it to you. Cool. The Rifleman starred a former baseball player by the name of Chuck Connors. Big, tall, good-looking guy. And the premise of the show was took place in New Mexico in the 1860s, after the uh, Civil War. He was a Civil War veteran on the side of the North, married, but his wife died, left him with a, a son. He 
pulled up stakes and moved to New Mexico. And now uh, he has a ranch, small ranch, outside of North Fork, New Mexico. Now, he's the rifleman, and what that means is he has a Winchester rifle that has a special loop on it and then a trigger uh, pusher. I don't know. I'm Jewish. I don't know how to say it. Trigger pusher thing where he can fire off like, you know, a hundred rounds or something like the faster than some. So that's his thing. Right. So, so, uh, and they have this farm, this, this, this working farm ranch. So he has a son whose name is Mark. So when I watched the pilot, I started adopting all of these Western mannerisms because it's a single guy raising a son named Mark named Lucas my father's name was Leonard. Mm. He's a single man raising a son named Mark, wow. right? So, you know, my father, now my father's this like fast talking, slick dressing, Cadillac driving, aluminum siding salesman. So he turns to me one day and says, uh, you hungry? What do we, let's go up to Weinstein's. Let's go to the deli. And I said, yeah, Pa, I could do with some vittles. <laughs> <laughs> and he looked at me what the fuck are you talking? What? 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 <laughs> so, so that's but, but I, you're laughing because I, I was that's what I was saying to him. But I was those were jokes. Yeah, right. That was the routine. Those were not, not now that was a routine, but that was a routine back then. So my life became that. Mm. It, 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 you know, uh, and and I don't know. I mean, I talked to people, friends who know me. Uh, back in that day, and nobody is surprised that you know I, I went into the entertainment business. Yeah. Like nobody is like you know, no, you did that really? No, it's not like that. Yeah, of course you did it. Yeah, you know. So, how was it when you actually shifted into doing stand up? Uh, so um, when I I was uh, uh, nineteen, dropped out of college, went to New York. Then to the cat went to the Catskill Mountains, became stage manager of the Raleigh Hotel in South Fallsburg in the Catskills, mm-hmm. uh, taking care of this fifteen hundred seat nightclub, right? And uh, saw every stand up comedian on that circuit like multiple times in the summer of nineteen sixty nine, and then for about nine months after that. And then I went to work, and I, I was putting together writing jokes and putting together stuff. I had not yet actually performed. Uh, and and uh, then I went to work for a comedian. Uh, you probably don't know the name. His name was London Lee. Long story short. Okay. You know who he was? Sounds familiar, yeah. Yeah, like the rich kid, right? This kid who, this guy who had a, a routine and it was all about being, because he was a very, he's like a, a non-offensive, uh, an inoffensive uh, buffoony uh, version of a Jewish Trump family, okay. right? Very wealthy. <laughs> yeah. But his family really had the money. Like, you know, his father was a you know international dress salesman, had a big building on seventh on Seventh Avenue. Anyway, and I started working with him. I went, I started as his driver. Uh then I started, I wrote a couple of jokes for him that worked. And and then he made me part of his act. So uh um in the middle of his act, he would ask for a glass of water and he would say, uh, Mark, Mark, bring me a glass of water. I come out with a glass of water and he would say to the audience, that's Mark. My father got him for me. Right. <laughs> and the audience, yeah, exactly. Laugh just like you. And then he and I would do a bit, right. Which they, he had, this is not my bit. He had this bit, which was, uh, uh, he'd look at me and say, uh, who am I? 
And I said, uh, oh, you're the boss. And he said, well, who are you? And I said, me? I'm nothing. He said, yeah, well, what does that make me? I said, eh, it makes you the boss over nothing. <laughs> and, and, you know, and yeah. the audience would take my side, you know, like this little guy that laugh at it, yada, yada, yada. So we did this. I don't know, five, six months, you know, I'm doing it with him. It's like, I could do it with my eyes closed. One night at, uh, I want to say Kutcher's, another hotel resort back then, 1200, 1500 C nightclub, just like the Raleigh, kind of very similar. Uh, do the bit. And I, I turn to walk out, to cross out. And I hear behind me, hey, stay here a second. I, I got to talk to you. He puts down the microphone. He says, look, I'm not feeling well. I think I'm coming down with something. Can you think you could do five minutes? Because he knows that I I go into New York and I, you know, go to little clubs. and do. So now it's like fucking Saturday night, you know, in, in front of a very arrogant audience, right? <laughs> An audience that's used to hearing like the best of the best. And I, I, I again, shit my pants, but I, you know, it's like step up or step off. You know, yeah. it's like you either got to do it or you, you know, you go back to square one. So I said, yeah, sure. So I went downstage center. He introduced me, gave me a very nice introduction, built me up. And, uh, uh, I did five minutes or so and they're laughing and I hear London from behind me say, all right, get the fuck off the stage. You know, <laughs> so, I mean, it's not me. They right. be. So, uh, we're driving back to, to, uh, uh New York from, uh, up to the city and he looks at me and says, you did really nice tonight. Thank you. And I said, oh, yeah, great. Thank you. <laughs> and he said, you know, I'm not going to do that every night. And I said, look, I feel the same way about this as I did the first time I had sex. Doing it once was all I wanted. <laughs> I, didn't, I wasn't thinking about the day after tomorrow. Right. I, I was just thinking about today. I just want to do it once. And he said, no, you did real good. You did. You, we'll do it again sometime, just not not every time. And, mm -hmm. and he did. We, we ended up doing it a few times. And then I spent uh, uh, two weeks with him. Last thing I did was a two-week gig at the Copacabana uh, in New York. Cool. And I, I got to do it a couple of times there, you know, not, not as much as I wanted to, but enough where I can, you know, legitimately say, yeah, I did stand up at the Copa yeah. uh, uh, in some way. And then I left London, got a manager, and shortly after that, landed last house on the left. And all the time had been doing, uh, you know, stand-up and getting up and doing a few minutes here, a few minutes there. Um, and then did last house. There's a whole period in my life. And then wrote a script, uh, sold the first script I ever wrote. What was that um, script? Huh? What was that script? That script was a, a movie of the week for NBC oh, that, that, uh, uh, yeah, that, that, that got bought, sold, paid and never made, <laughs> uh, but welcome to television. Got me a great agent, yeah. put money in my pocket, got me a car, an apartment, an office, you know, everything has its upside. You can't, you can't, uh, you can't just nail one thing, right. You, you know, uh, it, it, it was my transition to Hollywood and my, my, I didn't come here. You know, I didn't come here. I don't have like the typical Hollywood story where somebody comes here and they work as a waiter or a bartender and they struggle. No, the day I landed in California to move here from back east, I had a car, I had an apartment, I had an office, I'd sold the first script I ever wrote, money in the bank, and William Morris as an agent. So, you know, 
I thought that's just the way it went. <laughs> yeah. yeah. So, so to answer your question, they got me into the comedy store. Uh, William Morris, they, they asked me if I wanted to do stand up, and you know, I said, yeah. So they called Mitzi and Mitzi wouldn't give me, she didn't know me. So she wouldn't give me a, re- a regular time right away. Yeah. She said, but I'll give him uh, you know, like a Monday night open mic night. I- I'll give him a time there. So a definite time. So I went, couple of weeks before, watched the store, watched the comedians, kind of got a sense of the difference between New York humor that day in California. So I wrote a bunch of shit for here and uh, did a set, went fine. They asked me back. Uh, I tweaked it, came back the second week. It worked much better. Uh, tweaked it again, came back the third week. And it turns out, coincidentally, Mitzi was uh, showcasing somebody else and she's sitting in her booth showcasing a couple of people showcasing somebody else. And I had made it my, my point uh, to get in her eye line over the last few weeks. So she knew who I was. I thanked her, told her I was the guy from, you know, that William Morris had arranged with her. And she said, Oh, I know who you are. <laughs> and as that was good, you know, right. Yeah. All right. So, so anyway, I, I get my third time, and it's this kick-ass time spot. It's like 10, 15, 10, 20, 10, 15, 10, 30 or something. Just audience is hot. All the comedians in front of that time spot did really, really well. You know, nobody bombed. So the audience has known nothing but caviar, you know, and food for the night. Yeah. They've been, they're up. So I know from the 150, 200 club dates I did with London, all I got to do is keep them here to do well. I don't have to do anything other than not lose them. So I came out and I fucking killed it. You know, it was just one of those nights. I just, everything worked and and they were already up here. So I went off to like huge applause. I see Mitzi in her booth, you know, and I keep thinking, and then my father popped into my head and said, you know, fuck this shit. So I ran over to her (laughs) and I said, no, I went right over to her and said, Mitzi, does it have to get much better than this? <laughs> she said, she took a pause and she looked at me and she said, all right, Mark, call in for spats. <laughs> you know, and, that, and that was three weeks after I'd been there, you know, like three, three times. Wow. That was it. Nice. Yeah. And then shortly after that, I, I got a manager. Uh, Cause back in those days, I don't think it's the same way now because, uh, I just I just don't get that sense. But back then, a lot of talent representatives used to comb the comedy store and the improv. Like they're there every night, every night those guys were there and women. So they're they're there. And um, one thing I'll tell you is that anyone who is anyone today in comedy, if they went through, if they they you know went through the comedy store to get there, you weren't up on that stage more than a month before some real talent manager or agent approached you mm. to represent you. Like Dave, uh, uh, Charlie Joffe grabbed uh, uh, Robin and uh, David Letterman, like so fast, like <laughs> Robin first. He, Charlie, Charlie was a, a manager, uh, Roland Joffe, right? And they had Woody Allen, David Letterman, whole bunch, whole bunch, Billy Crystal, a whole bunch of people. But I I didn't I didn't uh, uh, know Jack Rollins, but I knew Charlie uh, kind of well, 
and um he, he, you know, good manager, but he had Robin and, and, and Larry Bresner who worked in the office became Robin's manager. Um, you know, it was, it was an amazing environment guys. It was just, I look back and I'm writing a book right now about, about my life, uh, called, uh, dumb effing luck. And, <laughs> and that's the title of it. So, so, and I'm really right now, I'm 170 pages into it. So, but, but it was just dumb effing luck that, I arrived there. Like we all arrived there. Dave Letterman had been there a couple of months already after I'd got gotten there before I got there. Robin was there for like a week or two weeks. Uh, uh, let me see. Leno had been there, been there and back to Boston, but now was here. Uh, and just anyone, Michael Keaton was there as part of us. So, yeah, I know. Laughing, yeah. Right? I like, I knew he did stand up. It's just funny. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah yeah like you know uh uh we were all on the same shows together yeah right so you know uh yeah it was uh it was a time man it was just a time it was it it was in, it was in this amazing bubble of of history of just fucking history yeah just ah uh, i know it's fucking great. Yeah. What was uh what was one of the most memorable nights from the comedy store for you? Cuz you probably had a lot of late nights, probably had a lot of long nights. <laughs> a lot, lot of late nights, a lot of long nights. Let me see. Okay, um I'll tell you a story. So, one of the things I realized after being at the comedy store for um you know, I don't know, a month, two months, is that uh, I would never, ever, ever have to go to a singles bar the rest of my life. <laughs> I'd never. Because being up on that stage at that time, you know, you'd see, look out there and you'd see like uh, tables full of, uh, of women. You know, they'd go out partying. You know, remember what time? This is like the, the 70s, right? Middle yeah. 70s. People are out partying, just doing shit, just having fun. So you get up on stage and um, I used to do this thing where if I saw a bunch of girls and any one of them was looking at me, I would uh, uh, subtly test her interest by moving one way or moving another. <laughs> and if I saw somebody watching me going like this, then I would take it to the next step, which was... I would do like a setup of a joke to one part of the audience and then deliver the punchline right to this girl, whoever <laughs> she was. That <laughs> uh, has, that's the comedian's effect of seeing of, of a romantic singer singing a song to mm -hmm. a, a lady in the audience. Yeah. Best we can do is do a punchline in her direction, right? And right. as long as it's not offensive or anything, right? So one particular night, uh, I spot somebody who I know is looking at me because by now I've recognized what that's like. And um, I do the thing with the punchline and it works. I walk off the stage, I go in the back and she hops off the table and follows me. <laughs> so one thing leads to another. I had a house in the Laurel Canyon area, like minutes from the comedy store, very convenient. I hop back in my car and I head back up the hill, and there I am in the house. Wow. So 
we're there, we're in bed, we're doing it, we're finished. She's getting dressed. I'm not getting dressed because I live there. Um, <laughs> she tells me, there's something I have to tell you. And I said, look, as long as it's not like microbially related, <laughs> disease related, you don't have to tell me anything. You don't even have to tell me your last name. So she said, well, I want to tell you. And I said, all right, go ahead. She said, I'm seeing another comedian. <laughs> I said, you understand that we met like an hour ago and we're <laughs> fucking, I don't think this is a problem. You know, uh, 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 she said, well, I just thought you, you want to know, you want to know who it is? <laughs> I said again, I, I go to my first answer, unless this is disease oriented. Um, I don't care. <laughs> so she blurts out, well, it's David Letterman. Oh, <laughs> <shit>. <laughs> And I don't say anything. And she's, well, don't you have something to say? I said, yes, I do. She said, what? I said, I admire your range. <laughs> that, that's, that's not, now, I, I have to, I don't know if she was telling the truth or she wasn't telling the truth. I never went up to Letterman and said, hey, are you, you fucking this guy named Nancy, this girl named Nancy. You know, uh, um, I don't know. So who knows if she was telling the truth? But that that's the story. Then here's one. Here's a Robin story. One night, we're at the original room, comedy store, Sunset, late, like 1130-ish, hanging out in the back. And Robin is, like, turning circles. And um, I said, what's wrong? He said, uh, I left, I lent my car to somebody and I got a spot in Westwood and um, they're not back yet and I can't get a hold of them and I'm fucked. And Robin was like, he had to perform, like people have to breathe, right? Yeah. Yeah. So, so um, I said, well, come on, I'll take you. So we went, I took him over there, walked in the comedy store in Westwood. There are three people in the audience. It's like 12, 15 on a, you know, and no, nobody's there. Three people. Ladies and gentlemen, Robin Williams. He gets up on the stage, does 100% the exact same show he would have done if there were 130 people in the audience, giving those three people, if they're still alive, an extraordinary memory. Yeah. Because he left the stage, he went down and sat with them, he did comedy, he did his act, part of his act right from the tape. I mean, he just... So we're getting in the car, coming back, and I said to him, uh, great show. And he was very shy and very humble. And, and he said, oh, thanks, man. I said, no, not that you can do a great show. Everybody knows that. But you did that same show that for, for three people that you do for 300 people. And in the most innocent way possible, he looks at me and says, yeah, well, you gotta. Hmm. And I thought to myself, well, there's a fucking lesson. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. There's the universe offering offering up some knowledge if I want to take it. And that was one of the great that was one of the great lessons of, of that. That's that's one of my moments at the comedy store, aside from 
the extraordinary amount of fun that everybody had. Um, um, we're, we're actually going to take a quick... Yeah. Um, higher than I am. Yeah, so... Um, so we were, we were just talking about the the comedy store. So I was kind of curious, like, like how, like, what's the for the time that you started doing comedy all the way through until now? Like, what are like the biggest things that you've seen that have changed for better or for the worse in the comedy world? Well, this may be controversial, controversial, but there are just too many fucking comedians. Mm. Um, and and you know, I run, I have. I'm ambiguous about about that because, of course, everybody has an inherent right to pursue uh, their passions, right? Yeah. Everybody, everybody has that right. Not everybody has the what it takes to be a brain surgeon or to be an, uh, a lawyer or to be a, a nuclear scientist. You may be passionate about it, but... It's just not your thing. Mm -hmm. So I've, I think that, you know, people have lost the ability or to laugh a a lot, right. Mm -hmm. At themselves, you know, um, uh, things that are jokeable, where that you know that are that are areas of, of humor that are inoffensive humor, or I've seen people get offended, and and you you try to wonder what is it that they're offended about? Mm-hmm. Like, you know, if somebody says something that's like racially offensive, you can you can track the uh, the line back to you know oppression and suffering and inhumanity so that makes sense mm-hmm. if if you attack somebody personally also for the same reasons you're you know you're using a, 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 a gavel to swat a fly mm-hmm. also wrong you know like i had i have a friend who i've known since i was a kid uh who's who's um an attorney and a bunch of other things uh, and he said to me that that I was always funny as a kid, but what he remembers was that nothing I was ever doing was ever at the expense of anyone else. Mm -hmm. So I think that, that people have adopted people who, where, where, where it doesn't exist, people have adopted a mantle that makes them a victim and therefore because they're they're you know they're loosely associated with a victim group, then they're a victim. I mean, I don't know. A joke is a joke. You know, things right. that are funny are funny. I try never to write anything that's that's offensive to any individual person, unless that's my goal. Mm-hmm. Like I write a lot of Donald Trump jokes, but <laughs> you know, that's my goal. Um, I I think I go to the comedy store every now and then, and I watch. And I believe that the the biggest common denominator observation, and it's not just mine, uh, a lot of other guys from my generation have the same opinion, is that this, the preponderance of young comedians don't know what a fucking punchline is. Hmm. 
They know what a setup is because mm-hmm. that's all they have, a lot of them. Mm-hmm. They have these funny concept setups that are sort of funny, but there's no, you know, there's an old thing in comedy writing that that you, to, to a setup is you're pulling the rubber band, right, before you snap it. So the more you pull it, the more distance you have, the greater the snap. Yeah. So all they have is they just pull it and they pull it and they pull it. And then it just goes on into infinity. And there's <laughs> never... <laughs> yeah. Oh, isn't that amusing, right? Oh, yeah. that's amusing. But there's no hardcore fucking punchline. That's why you haven't seen any new Robin Williams around. Mm. Or you have... Because Robin was nothing but punchlines. Yeah. You haven't... You have, right. So you, have, you haven't seen any new major, major comedy stars. Because... They, people either swear, which is, you know, the worst offense to me is somebody who just comes out and yells, you know, motherfucker and thinks that's a joke. Mm-hmm. Uh, and there's nothing funny behind it. There's nothing really funny behind it. Yeah. But, you know, somebody will break through and then that person will just be purely funny. Mm-hmm. Like, you guys know who John Mulaney is? Yeah, yeah. Yeah. He's very, I've seen him like half a dozen times in the club. He's really a funny guy. Uh-huh. Sebastian, Sebastian is a funny guy. Yeah. But he's an older guy and so has John's been around for a while now. I'm talking about the young, young guys. Yeah. You know, so I don't know. That's my, that's all I know. Nice. Lessons to be learned. Yeah. Lessons to be learned and lessons to be taken in. Uh, what else have you uh, gotten into in all of your years of Hollywood? Yeah, what are you uh, well, up to? Well, I have a movie a, a movie that I'm in called... Do one of you have a computer or something that you could go yeah. on? Yep. Type in the once and future smash. All right. I did see this coming up. Or this is this yeah. year. I'm in that, and it's having its uh, North oh, American cool. premiere uh, Wednesday night at the uh, TCL Chinese Theater in Hollywood, California. And I will be attending the premiere. Oh, awesome. Heck yeah. Oh, it's great. just got extraordinary reviews. Just... It, it, it uh, premiere, world premiere was at uh, Fright Fest in London. Uh-huh. It got like a dozen kick-ass fucking reviews. Just amazing. Damn. It's a, it's a like a, a mockumentary, right? Oh, okay, cool. cool. I was curious. <laughs> so, I'll just thumbnail it for you. It is to horror movies what Spinal Tap was to rock and roll. Oh, band. awesome. Nice. And that's not me. That I pulled that con- that that comparison from like uh, a dozen reviews who made that comparison themselves. Oh, cool! Awesome. Cool. So yeah, and I'm so thrilled to be in it. And I'm just like, you know, and uh, Sophia and Michael, the two directors, they're married and they're just amazing and wonderful. And and uh, Neil Jones, who was the uh, producer who got me involved in it, uh, it just. You know, just the good luck that's that's happening to these guys because they made it all through COVID. They shot a little bit here and a little bit there and a little bit and a little, you know, and they, they kept their vision through all the bullshit and they just worked worked hard. And it, I, I'm going to see it for the first time on Wednesday, but I just from reading the reviews, 
you know, I know a good review when I spot one. Yeah. I know many good reviews when I spot them. Yeah. What was it about this project that hooked you and made you want to do it more than anything else? Well, it wasn't more than anything else. It was like the end of, like in November, I think it was in November I did my, my, my work. Uh, what happened was Neil called me up, Neil Jones, and, and uh, said to me, uh, hey, I'm involved in the movie, and he told me about it. And it was the moment he told me that he wanted me to appear as myself. <laughs> and, I thought, and I thought, okay, somebody's doing something on horror films and they want me in the film as me, <laughs> then I'm all in. Yeah. Right. Yeah. So, so it was kind of like an ego tickle, right? <laughs> that, uh, uh, not only do they want me in it, they want me to be me in it. Yeah. So, you know, I said, yes. Uh, and it, we shot in one afternoon and it was fun. And I took my youngest son, who's 30 years old, 37 years old back then. And uh, he sat and watched me do it. And, and he was just in awe of the fact that I just completely was able to make everything up on the spot. <laughs> he said, Dad, how do you do that? And he said, actually, I don't know, man. It's just my thing, you know? Yeah. <laughs> just... So, yeah, it, it, I'm, lo- I'm really looking forward to it. And it's just, if you look at the credits, it's just a great bunch of people, you know, just people who were really just committed to, to making this thing be what the, the best of that they could contribute to Michael and uh, Sophia's vision and Neil's cool. vision. Uh, are you still an aficionado of horror films? Like, are you watching like, never, current horror films or no, you, you're just around the culture I, now? Yeah. I was never an aficionado of horror films. Uh, uh, but I, my life has taken me down that road at times to, yeah. to many places that I never thought I'd go. My wife is a huge uh, horror film fan. She's, we go to sleep every night to people being murdered and slaughtered. And... <laughs> oh, wait, what, what's your favorite? What's your recommend for the, uh, your favorite go to sleep movie? Ooh. Favorite go to sleep movie. Um... <sighs> I don't know. We watch these obs- we, we we watch these obscure. There's some Scandinavian, like you know, busting head with axe movies that are pretty good. <laughs> I'm, I'm hooked on uh, uh, Scandinavian uh, police dramas. Oh, wow. I don't I don't know why this is, but but unlike most foreign languages, except for Spanish, which I understand, um, I can turn my back to the screen. And they can keep talking, and somehow I know what's going on. Mm. <laughs> I don't know. I don't know what they're saying, you know. But I, I seem to understand the tone of it. Mm. Uh, anyway, so I don't know. Go to sleep. Just anything. I mean, just go to Netflix. I, I know I should be. I don't remember titles, man. I'm. I just remember how many people were killed, That's how right. they were killed. <laughs> <laughs> uh. <clears throat> What was the uh, the craziest thing that's ever happened to you on your way to buy weed? Oh, good question. <laughs> Since uh, that's kind of how uh, <laughs> that movie <laughs> takes off. <laughs> the girls just wanted a little reefer. <laughs> a little <Let's>... grass. <laughs> okay. So um, I had a roommate in my house in Laurel Canyon. 
and um, he was a chemical refreshment salesman. (laughs) And and, um, I mentioned to him one night that we were running low on weed. Uh, I'll, I'll see if I can get some tonight while I'm out. He said, no, don't worry. He has covered. I said, okay. I go to the comedy store. I do my set and uh, um, hang out for a while, come back. And by the time I'd come back, there were uh, uh, 40, 40 pound bales of Colombian <laughs> weed all over my house. Oh my God. And I, I said, what is this? He said, only going to be here overnight. <laughs> <laughs> I said, I said, I said, but it's everywhere. There's no place to sit. There's no place to, in the kitchen. It's in the bedrooms. He said, he said, it's one night. He, I, I said, I understand. That's the bad news. I said, what's the good news? He said, told me we could have as much as we wanted. You <laughs> don't have to go buy any. That's probably the craziest thing. And then, and then, um. Yeah, that's probably the craziest thing. No, definitely. What? What was? I I don't. But go ahead. Never mind. Keep going. No, please. Oh no! I was just gonna say, uh, what? What is it about the West Coast that has kept you out there? Because you're an East Coaster, right? I am. I am, and I've been back occasionally uh, uh, for some time periods. It's just great out. It's open spaces, like you know. My wife and I are very lucky people. Uh, we, we, over the course of a year, we live in about we live in three different places. Uh, we're in th- we're in three different places mm. right now. I'm in Indio, California, where we have a house, and then I'm going to our apartment in LA on Wednesday, and then about three months a year we spend with her family in Colombia. Cool. Uh, so so we move you know we move around. And um, as far as Los Angeles and the Southern California region, it's been very good to me. I have, it, it's like I told you earlier that, that it, it kind of, and it goes back to what my dad said. My, when I left college, I was going to come to California right away. And my dad said, no, don't do that. And I thought, well, why? You know, cause he's always telling me to just go out and do shit. And he said, he's, California is a strange place. He said, you might get there, but when you get there, don't go with your dick in your hand. Just be patient. And if you're supposed to be out there, it'll pull you toward it. Right. Mm -hmm. So he told me that when I was uh, 19, I was like, you know, when I was 19, right after I dropped out of college. So I did, I, I took his advice and went to New York. Everything that happened, happened. And then when I went to California, that's exactly what happened. It reached out and grabbed me. It pulled me there. It just, I didn't let go there on my own. It pulled me toward it, gave me things when I it had things for me. So I guess I have a love affair with, with, cause it's just been really good to me. My kids were raised here. Uh, one still lives here. Uh, he's an extraordinary uh, private event chef, you know, like, like a Michelin trained event chef. Cool. Uh, yeah, he's amazing. So, so, it's just it's just been really good to me. I love California because you know we we can 
basically do anything we want. <laughs> I still haven't gotten over this. Where do you guys live? New Jersey. Uh, Jersey. Yeah. Jersey. It's been legal for I, the last like year or two now. Yeah. yeah. Okay. So I understand that <clears throat> I'm 73 years old. That's what it says on my driver's license. But I promise you, like, I am the most immature motherfucker for seven years. <laughs> no, no, I have to remind myself on a weekly basis that, you know, I'm out of puberty. You know, it's just, <laughs> it's, so I have a thing I do. If I drive into a, a dispensary that's in a strip mall, uh-huh. if there's a cop car there, right? I'll drive away from the dispensary and park as close to the cop car as I can. <laughs> Get out of my car and say, excuse me, officer, I'm a little lost. I heard there's a place to buy marijuana around here. <laughs> <laughs> and there's, yeah, just, uh, there it is. You see it? It's behind that. See where that green cross is? Oh, yeah, thanks. Hey, you have a good one. You too. I still, I do that every fucking time. I can't <laughs> stop doing it. I just can't, yeah. I can't, I can't stop, you know, it's, so I, 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 um, I, I am very immature. I, I, I hold it together. Like, you know, very few places in life do I hold the, hold it together where, you know, not many, which is one of the great problems that I have with my wife is that, you know, she, I'm 19 or 20 and she's a grown woman. And, yeah. <laughs> no, and I've never, you know, and I've been, I, my, the fact that I've had the kind of career that I've had uh, contributed to that. Like I've never had to grow up. I've had to be responsible, you know, but I've never really had to grow up, you know, yeah. I've learned how to, you know, pretty much interact with the world on my own terms. That's And that keeps you young, mm-hmm. Amen. you know? Yeah, that because the only voice you have in your head is your own, ain't somebody else's. Damn straight, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. yeah it's true, it's true. <laughs> <laughs> well, well, I think I speak for both of us when I say this was a very uh, fantastic yes. conversation. It was really great talking to you, Mark. Oh, I, talk, I talk a lot. I apologize. For oh that. no, you no you can talk as much as you want. These yeah. stories were great, and it was really great talking to you. <laughs> That's what happens when you're your own favorite subject. Shit happens. <laughs> yes. Well, Mark, please continue to talk your t- uh, by yourself as you please pl- uh, plug uh, all the stuff online that you have or any projects that you have uh, coming up that you want to give one more shout out. I'm writing, I'm writing a book. I'm writing a book called uh, uh, Dumb Effing Luck. Um, it'll be done when it's done. Uh, I have a movie coming out and maybe a TV series. I don't know. Cool. Cool, cool. On the on the on the producing side, so oh nice, cool. Looking very. forward to hearing more about it. Well, thank you for listening to another episode of Sessions Mary right. Jane. Yeah, yeah. You have a good one. Thank you too, man. Bye. Bye.